Hey everybody, it's Brock Falk, and I want to thank you for listening to this message from Heritage Church of Christ. We would be thrilled to share more content like this with you and make it easy for you to share it with others. You can find more messages like this on our podcast, or you can download our smartphone app by searching for Heritage Church of Christ in your app store. But most importantly, I hope this message encourages you to take a next step toward a thriving relationship with Jesus. Enjoy. Suggestion that most of the people in our community who aren't Christians or who aren't connected to a church probably already have some impressions in their minds about what church and Christians are like. Maybe you already knew that, but that's my, my, my best you know, research and guess. Everybody I can tell, the folks who aren't part of church in our community have an idea in their mind of what church is all about. And in many cases, their impressions are not very positive. Some people, some people only know what they've heard about church. Maybe they've heard about, you know, some things that some Christians were doing and it was reported on the news or they've read something about it on the web. And the truth of the matter is that too often Christians who get featured on the news are getting featured because they're not doing things that are positive sometimes, you know. But there are others who have had their own personal experience with church or with Christians that just kind of left them feeling unimpressed or, 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 or frustrated or disappointed. And it's sad because most of us who are Christians would say that faith is, or at least we want it to be, right at the center of our lives. We want it to be the driving force. We want Jesus to be the motivation behind everything we do. Because when we come to realize who we were, who we would be without Jesus, we we wish that kind of connection for everybody. We wish everybody had the kind of hope and purpose and peace that we have in Jesus. And so in this series, we've been asking this question together as a family, how can this group of Christians, how can the Christians in this church family surprise the non-Christians in our community by exceeding their expectations of what Christians are like? What could we do? Who could we be? What practices could we adopt that would suddenly cause the folks in our community who aren't connected to Jesus to say, huh, tell me more about that. I'm interested. What, what makes you live that way? Now, last week I sent you out with an assignment. I asked you to be on the lookout for opportunities to bless people in a way that would get their attention. All right, not, not just opening the door for somebody in the, on the way into the store, not just letting somebody else go first at the stop sign when you got there at the same time, but I'm talking about in a way that they would notice that you had done something unusual, something that they didn't expect, something creative. And, and so last week we went out on the hunt, looking out, watching out for ways to be a blessing to other people. But this week, I promise, is going to be easier because this week we're talking about a habit that you're not going to going to have to change anything to be able to start adopting this, right? I hope you're going to be as excited as I am because today we're talking about how we can actually use eating to build relational connection in the name of Jesus. Anybody here that's planning to eat this week? All right. Perfect. There's at least six of you. That's great. Um, So I want to tell you, before you start thinking that that sounds like too good to be true, or before you start thinking that this sounds like unspiritual or something like that, I want to clear something up here and let you in on just how much 
eating was a part of Jesus's ministry strategy. In fact, as you read through the stories of Jesus, you will discover that eating with people, eating strategically with other people, was such a high priority to Jesus that he developed a reputation among his opponents simply based on his eating habits. In Luke chapter 7, if you were to open up your Bible and find Luke chapter 7 verse 34, there's a passage here where Jesus is addressing some of the rumors that were circulating about him among his opponents and he said this about himself he said the son of man referring to himself he said the son of man came eating and drinking which is not what everybody expected the Messiah to do the son of man came eating and drinking he said and yet you say my opponents say here is a glutton and a drunkard a friend of tax collectors and sinners what I want you to notice here is that it stood out so much to people that Jesus' ministry seemed to be centered around meals. And it wasn't just a coincidence. It was part of Jesus' strategy to reach people. In fact, Jesus spent so much time at parties and feasts and weddings and meals that it became a regular point of criticism from the people who thought he was a false teacher. And they were not just being critical about how often he ate or what he ate. They were being critical particularly about who he chose to eat with. You see, Jesus used mealtimes on purpose. He used mealtimes strategically. He used mealtimes to build relationship, to build trust, to make connections with people. He used mealtimes as teachable moments. And that meant that Jesus intentionally ate with people who felt the most disconnected from the faith. One of Jesus' followers wrote about this, Matthew, one of the books in our New Testament, written by Matthew himself. Matthew records the details of the day that Jesus came and called him to be a follower. Matthew chapter 9, Jesus visits this tax collector's booth, which is a government installation that belongs to the occupying Roman government. It's not a place that most Jewish people would have wanted to go. All right, but Jesus comes to the tax collector's booth, introduces himself to Matthew, who's working in the tax collector's booth, and invites Matthew to come and be a disciple. And when Matthew says yes, immediately after that, the very first thing that they did was Jesus encouraged Matthew to gather all of his friends and let's get together and eat together. And so they end up having kind of an impromptu house party at Matthew's place. And back in the day, tax collectors were hated by everybody in that, in that culture. They were seen as traitors and extortionists who abused their own people to support this occupying Roman government. And so when Jesus's opponents found out that he was in a, at a party with a bunch of tax collectors and their friends, his opponents immediately took Jesus's disciples to task about it. They asked him, or they asked the disciples, why, why does your teacher eat with people like this? Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus overheard their question, and he stops what he's doing. I can picture him like with a drumstick in his hand, you know, and he's like, hold on just a second, you know. And he speaks up, and he says, I'm not here on accident. 
He says, this was not a mistake. This was not a strategic faux pas in my ministry. He says, I chose my table mates on purpose precisely because these are the people who are disconnected from the religious community. You see, Jesus was treating his entire life as a mission to help people get connected and feel connected to God. And so over time, the people who thought they already knew everything, the people who thought they already were close enough to God, accused Jesus of cohorting with the wrong people. They called him a friend of sinners, which was supposed to be an insult. It was supposed to really get his goat when they said that. Oh, he's a friend of sinners. He's one of those religious teachers who doesn't take sin very seriously. But when they called him a friend of sinners, Jesus didn't deflect. He didn't get defensive. He didn't try to explain that that was not actually the case. He took that insult of theirs, and he embraced it. He said, guilty as charged. He said, yeah, I'm a friend of sinners. Jesus realized that while his choice of dining companions was given ammunition to his opponents, it was making a statement to the people he ate with. It was communicating value. It was communicating dignity. It was communicating worth. Jesus was saying with his actions, I care about you and I want to be a part of your life and I want you to be a part of my life. And this was the typical way that Jesus reached out to people for whom faith didn't come easy. He started with food. I mean, there was other ways he could have done it. He could have walked up to Matthew's tax collector's booth just lugging a big old copy of the Old Testament written on a scroll, you know, and like dumped it on Matthew's table and said, hey, read this and get your life right. Like he could have, maybe, maybe he could have tried that, but he didn't do that. He didn't go out looking for groups of synagogue dropouts so that he could start preaching at them about their failures. That was not Jesus' M.O. Jesus didn't worry about the accusations that would be made about him or the guilt by association that, he would, be, that would be suggested about him. He didn't try to keep his distance from people on the outside of religion. In fact, Jesus made it a habit to share table and to break bread with people who needed good news the most. This is who he was. And when he did it, it created opportunities for listening. It created opportunities for connection. It opened up opportunities for hospitality. And Jesus had this, this posture of inclusion. He drew circles in the community rather than lines of division. He had this posture of inclusion that was a breath of fresh air to people who had been judged and excluded by religious insiders for far too long. It gave them hope, and it gave them a point of entry to hear about God's love for them. And so Jesus' ministry was characterized by meal after meal after meal. So one, one commentator I read about the book of Luke says, if you read through all the stories in Luke in order, it seems like Jesus is always going to a meal, sitting at a meal, or coming from a meal. You know, like he's, that's, that's constantly what he's doing. But there were, there were, that was always his strategy to share meals with people even if they felt unworthy, even if they seemed undeserving. And sometimes, sometimes that had to happen just with people who were already part of the movement. Some of the examples I want to tell you about, there, the meal that would be Jesus' last supper before he was arrested and crucified. Maybe you've seen the famous painting where for some reason all the guys are sitting on the same side of the table, like it looks really weird, you know, nobody's sitting on the other side. I don't know what that was about. But at, the, at this last supper, Jesus shares this meal 
with all of his disciples, and in the middle of that meal, he, he predicts that all of those people are about to turn their back on him. He knows that he's about to be arrested because one of them has already turned him in, told the authorities where to find him. He knows that that's coming. And he knows that everybody else is going to become afraid of what could happen to them and they're going to put distance between themselves and Jesus. He knows that's coming. And he mentions it at the meal and some of them say, there's no way we would ever walk away from you. He says, you're going to do it before tomorrow. And yet, right after he says that, he shares a meal with them. He sets the table. He hosts the feast. He shares a meal with Judas, the one who turned him in. He shares a meal with Peter and the others who would soon walk away because he knew that sharing that meal was making a statement about their relationship that they were soon going to need to be reminded about and that he hoped they would never forget. There was another moment a few weeks after that recorded in John chapter 21. It happens after Jesus died and was raised from the dead, and all of Jesus' disciples had abandoned him, just like he predicted. But then they'd seen him alive again after the resurrection moment, and they were confused, and they wondered what all that meant, and what it meant for them, and their place, and their relationship with Jesus. And in John chapter 1, chapter 21, excuse me, John 21, tells us that Jesus met some of his disciples by the lake after they'd been out on the boat fishing. And when they brought the boat in, he said, y'all come over here, and guess what? He'd been cooking breakfast. He's got a meal ready for them. And he invites them to come and eat, and over breakfast, he reinstates them as his disciples, and he recommissions them for their ministry roles, and he reminds them of who he has constantly said that they can be. You see, every time Jesus shared a meal with somebody, it was communicating value. It was communicating acceptance. It was communicating inclusion it was bestowing hospitality. Jesus was saying, I still want to be a part of your life. And that's actually a beautifully fitting way to think about the meal that we just shared just a few minutes ago. We participated in this communion thing. Some of you have you know, had some coffee or slipped in a piece of gum at this point, but I can still taste the grape juice, right? Like, just this is fresh. We just shared this experience a minute ago. We had this meal, and it's remarkable that when Jesus wanted to give his disciples a trigger for their memories, to remind them about who he is, he didn't give the disciples a song to sing. He didn't give them the script of a prayer to pray. He gave them a meal to share. He said, when you all get together and have this meal, when you get together and you participate in eating and drinking together, he said, remember me. And so that's what we do every week as a church family. We get together and we share this simple meal, and it's basic. It's just juice and crackers, but it's so much more than that because for us, this is Jesus' meal. This is Jesus' table, Jesus' offering shared with us. And we've been invited to partake, even if our behavior lately hasn't been particularly Christ-like. And it's that feeling of being included, that feeling of being accepted, that feeling of being invited that's supposed to trigger for us the memory of who Jesus really is, to help us remember what Jesus is like. That's what the communion is doing. But it's also pointing us to something else in the future. 
You see, there's going to be a day. There's going to be a day when we're all invited to take our seats at the heavenly banquet table with Jesus. If you were to look towards the very end of your Bible, in the last few chapters of Revelation, a disciple of Jesus named John described the vision God gave him about the wedding supper of the Lamb. It's going to be a feast celebrating the reunification of Jesus and the church after we've been separated as he ascended to heaven to prepare a place for us. And John says after Jesus has returned and evil has been overthrown, there's going to be a great banquet where everyone who has held on to the testimony of Jesus is going to be invited to eat together. There's going to be people from every nation, every language, every ethnicity, every time period in history. There's going to be this enormously diverse guest list. And the fact the, the one thing that all of us will have in common, maybe the only thing that we'll all have in common at that table, is that we will have all accepted the invitation from Jesus to come. When John saw this vision, he said an angel told him, write down these words, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And that supper's like our finish line. Like that's the culmination, the reward for those who endure the challenge of waiting patiently and faithfully for Jesus to return. And I realize it's difficult to wrap our minds around everything that that means and what that's going to be like. Anyone who's ever navigated themselves into Revelation knows how confusing and difficult and challenging that can be. And so it's hard to imagine what it'll be like when heaven and earth are joined together and when brokenness in the world is repaired and we get to be in the presence of Jesus, it can provoke a lot of confusion as much as joy and anticipation. But here's how I want to simplify it for you this morning. I want to get you thinking about God's work in the world in terms of invitations to a table. I want you to reflect on the strategy and the trajectory of Jesus' ministry. You see, Jesus' mission was to open up the way for humans to attend this wedding supper of the Lamb, the heavenly table. And that's, that's an oversimplified way of saying everything that Jesus did, but ultimately his objective was to break the curse that separated heaven and earth, to break the curse that separated humans from God, and to usher in the reunion that's going to happen at that great banquet table. But in order to get his disciples to hang on, to be patient, to stay the course, to, to, to stay connected until that day, Jesus instituted the communion table so that our, his followers for generations would be able to come together and remind each other of the story that we're holding on to. The communion table connects us to disciples all over the history and all over the world who are also eagerly anticipating the reunion that Revelation promises. We're e eating at this communion table together leads us to our seat at the heavenly table. But there's one more detail in the plan I want to make sure you don't miss. One more detail in the plan I want you to notice about how Jesus strategically worked to draw people to the communion table. Because as we read the accounts of Jesus' life on earth, time after time after time, Jesus connected people and invited them to the journey of discipleship by starting with just an ordinary meal with them. Sitting at an ordinary meal table. It happened with Matthew and his tax collector friends. It happened with Zacchaeus, that vertically challenged guy that they sing about down in children's ministry, the wee little man, you know, who wanted to have Jesus come to his house. 
It happened at a wedding feast in Cana where Jesus went and he was at this party and they ran out of wine and he performed his first public miracle not only to save the party and the reputation of the hosts but to begin to let people know who he was. It happened on a beach when Jesus reinstated Peter after Peter had denied him and fallen away. And so what I want you to see is that Jesus' ministry strategy revolved around sitting at dining tables with people in order to build relationships so that they would accept the invitation to the communion table and ultimately to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And I think that following Jesus' strategy of sitting at dining tables with people who are on the outside of the faith might be the first step in obeying Jesus' example to invite people into communion with Jesus. There's something about sitting around the table that connects us, right? I mean, something about being around the table in every culture around the world. There's something about being at the table, sharing a meal, sharing hospitality that makes relationships grow. I mean, this is just true for all humans. When we eat together, we see the humanity in one another. We tell stories and we talk and we laugh and we discuss things that we hope for and the things that we worry about. And we open up to one another and we get to talk about the stuff that's most important to us. One of my favorite theologians, a writer I recommend to you who's on my very short list is Henry Nouwen. Henry Nouwen said, when we invite friends for a meal, we do much more than offer them food for their bodies. We offer friendship, fellowship, good conversation, intimacy, and closeness. When we say, help yourself, take some more, don't be shy, have another glass, we offer our guests not only our food and drink, but also ourselves. And you might not notice it when you read through the Jesus story, but offering ourselves is what Jesus has been calling us to do this whole time. Romans chapter 12, Paul says we should offer our bodies. We've been invited to offer our bodies as living sacrifices, not the kind of sacrifice that gets burned up, incinerated, and destroyed, but a, a sacrifice that offers itself repeatedly to be used for God's purposes. Offering ourselves is what Jesus has asked us to do. And so what could we do to begin offering ourselves and our hospitality to the world through sharing tables with people? What could we do? Because it's not just how often we eat or what we eat, it's who we eat with. A few years ago, my wife got the opportunity to strike up a friendship with a young mom in our community who is from India and she is Hindu in her uh, faith background and they they began began to strike up a friendship and you know they'd connect at some different moms group kind of events and it was kind of a you know just a superficial kind of relationship at the beginning until this woman and her husband invited my family over for dinner and we went to their house, and we talked about cricket and football. And I didn't know anything about cricket, and he didn't know anything about football, but we laughed about it together. And we looked at pictures together, and they told us about their wedding and what it was like in India. And we shared food, and I couldn't identify what most of it was, but it sure tasted good. I had a great time eating with them, and we had such a fun connection. And then Later, a few months later, it came Thanksgiving time, and we invited them, and they came to our house, and we shared table together. 
and we began to build more friendship. And we laughed and we talked and we told more stories. We talked about raising children and how that is such an important thing to all of our hearts. You know, we talked about the stuff that matters. And we've gotten together a few more times. The last time we got invited over to their house, it was so cool because we got there and they had invited six other families from the Indian community in our little neighborhood here. And so we were the only family there that wasn't from India. And we got to meet so many people that were part of their network and they were inviting us into their lives and they insisted that we be the guests of honor and go through the food lines first and all of that kind of thing. And it was so incredible to be making those kinds of human connections. And I hope that those are the kinds of connections that build relationship and trust and give us opportunities to talk about what matters the most to us. So I want to begin to invite you to be looking for ways to share table with people who are outside of the family of Jesus. To look for opportunities to share meals with people who are not yet connected to Christ. And you don't have to get this done this week. I know this one takes a little more advanced planning, although we are all going to eat this week, you know. But, but you, you can start being strategic. Start looking around for chances to connect with some people who are outside of the family of Jesus. It doesn't have to be formal. You don't have to, like, put out tablecloths and fine china. You don't have to invite anybody to your house. You don't have to know how to cook. This can happen in the break room. This can happen at a coffee shop. This can happen at the cafeteria at the school. This can happen all over the place, but it's about who you choose to sit with, who you choose to invite into your table. You know, as you read through and study through the texts in the New Testament, there's a lot of talk in here about the gifts that the Holy Spirit gives us. And it talks about how there are some Christians who are given the gift, the spiritual gift of evangelism. Some Christians are distinctly gifted to do the public proclamation of the good news of Jesus. And then there are some Christians who have other gifts. But in spite of that diversity of gifts, all Christians are called to be ready to share the reason for the hope that they have. All Christians are called to just be ready to answer questions about why you've put your hope in Jesus. I wonder if it might give us some new opportunities to entertain questions and to have meaningful conversation about our hope if we were breaking bread together with people who don't have the same story. I wonder if it would surprise the world if we started to open up our homes and open up our schedules and open up our meals and open up our tables to people who don't have the same story, I wonder if it would surprise the world to be invited into the meals that we share with our families and with our loved ones and with our church family. I wonder if it would surprise the world, but I also wonder if it would surprise us because as we branch out and find our way to tables with people from other stories, I wonder if we would find that Jesus is ahead of us and he's been working there too. Because that's how Jesus seems to work. Seems to always be looking for opportunities to invite people to the table. And so that'll be the challenge for us this week. As we're looking for ways to surprise the world, be, be on the lookout for a way to branch out and to share the most natural, most common human experience of eating with other people who need to know the hope that you have. 